War and Peace, Book 10, Chapter 34 Read for LibriVox.org by Philippa Brody Napoleon's generals, Davout, Ney, and Murat, who were near that region of fire and sometimes even entered it, repeatedly led into it huge masses of well-ordered troops. But contrary to what had always happened in their former battles, instead of the news they expected of the enemy's flight, these orderly masses returned thence as disorganized and terrified mobs. The generals reformed them, but their numbers constantly decreased. In the middle of the day, Murat sent his adjutant to Napoleon to demand reinforcements. Napoleon sat at the foot of the knoll, drinking punch, when Murad's adjutant galloped up with an assurance that the Russians would be routed if His Majesty would let him have another division. "'Reinforcements?' said Napoleon, in a tone of stern surprise, looking at the adjutant, a handsome lad with long black curls arranged like Murat's own, as though he did not understand his words. "'Reinforcements,' thought Napoleon to himself. "'How can they need reinforcements when they already have half the army directed against a weak, unentrenched Russian wing?' "'Tell the King of Naples,' he said sternly, "'that it is not noon yet, and I don't yet see my chessboard clearly. Go!' The handsome boy adjutant with the long hair sighed deeply without removing his hand from his hat, and galloped back to where men were being slaughtered. Napoleon rose, and having summoned Colincourt and Berthier, began talking to them about matters unconnected with the battle. In the midst of this conversation, which was beginning to interest Napoleon, Berthier's eyes turned to look at a general with a suite, who was galloping towards the knoll on a lathering horse. It was Belia. Having dismounted, he went up to the emperor with rapid strides, and in a loud voice began boldly demonstrating the necessity of sending reinforcements. He swore on his honour that the Russians were lost if the emperor would give another division. Napoleon shrugged his shoulders and continued to pace up and down without replying. Belliard began talking loudly and eagerly to the generals of the suite around him. "'You are very fiery, Belliard,' said Napoleon, when he came up again to the general. In the heat of a battle it is easy to make a mistake. Go and have another look, and then come back to me. Before Belliard was out of sight, a messenger from another part of the battlefield galloped up. Now then, what do you want? asked Napoleon, in the tone of a man irritated at being continually disturbed. Sire the prince, began the adjutant. Asks for reinforcements, said Napoleon, with an angry gesture. The adjutant bent his head affirmatively and began to report. But the emperor turned from him, took a couple of steps, stopped, came back, and called Berthier. "'We must give reserves,' he said, moving his arms slightly apart. "'Who do you think should be sent there?' he asked of Berthier, whom he subsequently termed, "'That gosling of maiden eagle.' "'Send Clapore's division, sire,' replied Berthier, who knew all the divisions, regiments, and battalions by heart. Napoleon nodded assent. The adjutant galloped to Clapore's division, and a few minutes later the young guard stationed behind the knoll moved forward. Napoleon gazed silently in that direction. "'Non,' he said suddenly to Berthier. "'I can't send Clapore. Send Fouillon's division.' Though there was no advantage in sending Fouillon's division instead of Clapore's, and even in obvious inconvenience and delay in stopping Clapore and sending Fouillon now, the order was carried out exactly. Napoleon did not notice that in regard to his army he was playing the part of a doctor who hinders by his medicine, a role he so justly understood and condemned. 
Friant's division disappeared as the others had done into the smoke of the battlefield. From all sides adjutants continued to arrive at a gallop, and as if by agreement all said the same thing. They all asked for reinforcements, and all said that the Russians were holding their positions and maintaining a hellish fire under which the French army was melting away. Napoleon sat on a campstool wrapped in thought. M. de Bousset, the man so fond of travel, having fasted since morning, came up to the Emperor, and ventured respectfully to suggest lunch to His Majesty. "'I hope I may now congratulate Your Majesty on a victory,' he said. Napoleon silently shook his head in negation. Assuming the negation to refer only to the victory and not to the lunch, M. de Bousset ventured with respectful jocularity to remark that there is no reason for not having lunch when one can get it. "'Go away!' explained Napoleon suddenly and morosely, and turned aside. A beatific smile of regret, repentance, and ecstasy beamed on M. de Bousset's face, and he glided away to the other generals. Napoleon was experiencing a feeling of depression like that of an ever-lucky gambler who, after recklessly flinging money about and always winning, suddenly, just when he's calculated all the chances of the game, finds that the more he considers his play, the more surely he loses. His troops were the same his generals the same. The same preparations had been made, the same dispositions, and the same proclamation, court et énergique. He himself was still the same. He knew that, and knew that he was now even more experienced and skilful than before. Even the enemy was the same as at Austerlitz and Friedland, yet the terrible stroke of his arm had supernaturally become impotent. All the old methods which that had been unfailingly crowned with success, the concentration of batteries at one point, an attack by reserves to break the enemy's line, and a cavalry attack by the men of iron. All these methods had already been employed, and yet not only was there no victory, but from all sides came the same news of generals killed and wounded, of reinforcements needed, of the impossibility of driving back the Russians, and of disorganization among his own troops. Formerly, after he had given two or three orders and uttered a few phrases, marshals and adjutants had come galloping up with the congratulations and happy faces, announcing the trophies taken, the cause of prisoners, bundles of enemy eagles and standards, cannon and stores, and Murat had only begged leave to loose the cavalry to gather in the baggage wagons. So it had been at Lodi, Marengo, Arcola, Jena, Austerlitz, Wagram, and so on. But now something strange was happening to his troops. Despite news of the capture of the fleshes, Napoleon saw that this was not the same, not at all the same, as what had happened in his former battles. He saw that what he was feeling was felt by all the men about him experienced in the art of war. All their faces looked dejected, and they all shunned one another's eyes. Only a debusé could fail to grasp the meaning of what was happening. But Napoleon, with his long experience of war, well knew the meaning of a battle not gained by the attacking side in eight hours after all efforts had been expended. He knew that it was a lost battle, and that the least accident might now, with the fight balanced on such a strained centre, destroy him and his army. When he ran his mind over the whole of this strange Russian campaign, in which not one battle had been won, and in which not one flag, or cannon, or army corps had been captured in two months, when he looked at the concealed depression on the faces around him and heard reports of the Russians still holding their ground, a terrible feeling like a nightmare took possession on him, and all the unlucky accidents that might destroy him occurred to his mind. The Russians might fall on his left wing, might break through his centre, he himself might be killed by a stray cannonball. All this was possible. In former battles he had only considered the possibilities of success, 
but now innumerable unlucky chances presented themselves, and he expected them all. Yes, it was like a dream in which a man fancies that a ruffian is coming to attack him, and raises his arm to strike that ruffian a terrible blow which he knows should annihilate him, but then feels that his arm drops powerless and limp like a rag, and the horror of unavoidable destruction seizes him in his helplessness. The news that the Russians were attacking the left flank of the French army aroused that horror in Napoleon. He sat silently, on a campstool below the knoll, with head bowed and elbows on his knees. Bertier approached and suggested that they should ride along the line to ascertain the position of affairs. "'What? What do you say?' asked Napoleon. "'Yes. Tell them to bring me my horse.' He mounted and rode towards Semenovsk. Amid the powder smoke slowly dispersing over the whole space through which Napoleon rode, horses and men were lying in pools of blood, singly or in heaps. Neither Napoleon nor any of his generals had ever before seen such horrors or so many slain in such a small area. The roar of guns that had not ceased for ten hours wearied the ear and gave a peculiar significance to the spectacle, as music does to tableau vivant. Napoleon rode up the high ground at Semenovsk, and through the smoke saw ranks of men in uniforms of a colour unfamiliar to him. They were Russians. The Russians stood in serried ranks behind Semenovsk's village and its knoll, and their guns boomed incessantly along their line and sent forth clouds of smoke. It was no longer a battle. It was a continuous slaughter, which could be of no avail either to the French or the Russians. Napoleon stopped his horse and again fell into the reverie from which Bertier had aroused him. He could not stop what was going on before him and around him, and was supposed to be directed by him and to depend on him, and from its lack of success this affair for the first time seemed to him unnecessary and horrible. One of the generals rode up to Napoleon and ventured to offer to lead the old guard into action. Ney and Bertier, standing near Napoleon, exchanged looks and smiled contemptuously at this general's senseless offer. Napoleon bowed his head and remained silent a long time. "'At eight hundred leagues from France I will not have my guard destroyed,' he said, and turning his horse rode back to Chevardino. End of chapter 34 Recording by Philippa Brody, Edinburgh, laspecola.blogspot.com